Good morning again. All right. If you have your Bibles with you, we just read the text a few minutes ago, Revelation chapter 2, and I want to tell you right now, this is perhaps one of the hardest messages to work through. So we'll job right into it. What are you here for this morning? Why am I here? After all, we're so busy. Why give any extra time we have away? We could be sleeping in right now. We could be doing some shopping right now. But why are you here? Why am I here? Is it something that you do or I do that will put our conscience at ease? Or is it uh, we feel that we're doing Forestburg Baptist Church or, dare I say, even God a favor by showing up here today? Or is it your love for Christ, the reason why you are here? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I mean, excuse me, chapter 5, the first part of verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Another translation will say, compels us. What is controlling you? What is compelling you? What is the motivation behind the things that you do? The Christians at Ephesus had forsaken or abandoned their first love. Now, the city of Ephesus was one of the most prosperous, getting tongue-tied, excuse me, prosperous provinces in the Roman Empire. The population was approximately 100,000 to 200,000 people. It was a harbor city. There were great trade routes that met at Ephesus. There was a lot of commerce going on. However, it was best known for its temple to the fertility goddess Artemis. The temple was the first one that was completely made of marble. Listen to this. The temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 127 pillars that were 60 feet tall. That is an artist renderance of the temple. The picture before that is the columns that all remain of that structure. Now, the power of this temple or this cult is seen in the right that we read about in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 41. There was also the imperial cult. In other words, they worshiped the emperor, and it also thrived there in Ephesus. Now, the church there was established by Priscilla and Aquila. Later, it was aided by Apollo. You can find that story in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 25. So that is some of the background of the city and of the church. There's more to be found out. If you'd like to find out more about that city, I can point you where you need to go in the Bible and also a secondary resource that's very helpful in that study. We turn our attention to verse 1, and the first thing we read is that, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, angels function as an authoritative witness. There is one that is assigned to each church. Now, the logical expectation of John would have been for the letters to make their way to the one who is responsible for reading and interpreting to the congregation. 
There was a lot of ink spilled on this. I'm not going to sell this right here and right now. Some think perhaps it was a real angel. Some people perhaps it was the pastor of that church. At any rate, this letter was to be read before the church, and I would say John knew it was going to somebody who had the authority to stand up before the congregation and read and interpret the letter. Look what it says. The one who holds the seven stars, who walks among the lampstands. It's a prophetic formula built on Old Testament themes that describes Christ as we read about back in chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Now, it's interesting, as we plow through the next six letters, be seven counting this one, the character of Christ is presented in each one, and it's perfectly chosen to address the needs of that particular church. So what we're about to read is a description of Christ that goes right to that particular need or needs of the church of Ephesus. It serves as a reminder of the key truth to which they have neglected. And here's the key truth. There's no room for pride because God alone, Jesus alone, is sovereign. And what is he doing? He's walking among the lampstands. Now that walking combines the ideas of concern for and authority over the church. The Lord is fully aware of what's transpiring in his church of Ephesus. And I would also echo that here. God knows fully aware, fully aware of what's happening here at Forestburg Baptist. He walks among his churches, knowing them thoroughly. He holds the lives and the ministries of the pastors firmly in his hand. Now, this has me just a little bit frightened, I must say. One day I'll have to stand before God and give an account how I pastored this church for every word that I proclaim for this pulpit. Did I handle his word correctly, or did I twist it to my own benefit or satisfaction? Look what he says in verse 2. I know your deeds, your toil or your labor, your perseverance or your endurance. I know, he says... Now, that's not intuitive or certain knowledge. I want you to know it's absolute knowledge he has. He doesn't have to go search it out. He knows everything. And the Greek word translated toil, labor, or hard work, refers to strenuous labor that's indicated by weariness. This hard work that will reap rewards or result in rewards. The church, look what he's saying. He's praising the church that they have not grown weary in their toil, but what they have endured. It reminds you of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of our God and Father. They're enduring in their work. But he goes on, look back in verse 2. No, are they working hard. He said, you cannot tolerate or bear, some translations, endure evil men. Now, that word tolerate is interesting because it literally means to pick up or to carry. Now, in certain contexts, that word is used to uh, refer to intense heat or weakness of others. For example, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 12, it's used this way. These last men have worked only one hour and you have... You have them equal to us who have borne the burden. There it is, borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. That's the story Jesus is telling, a parable, 
people show up to work, and the last people show up, they pay them the same. That's how it's using it. They bear the heat of the sun. Now, Romans 15, 1 is used slightly different. It says, now we are who strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. So if we're strong in faith, we are to help people bear their burdens, help them with their weakness. So now we're bearing with somebody or carrying their burdens with us. And it's interesting, when you take all this together, you look back into the text, the church in Ephesus was not able to bear or endure evil men. They could not bear the weight of them. They didn't like it. Not only that, look back in verse 2. You have put to the test those who call themselves apostles. <coughs> they understood the necessity for doctoral purity. They tested those who declared themselves to be apostles. And that word test carries a connotation and the implication of a thorough examination. In other words, a critical examination of a person's claim. A little over five years ago, five years and what, two, three months, I met with a group of people from this church, and they asked me questions. They were put me through an examination to see if I was truly what I claimed to be, a pastor, a Christian, man of faith, a man of God. I'm not going to share everything they ask, but if you'd like to find out who it was, I'll tell you. They, they sent me questions ahead of time. That's testing. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus is talking about good fruit and bad fruit, and he talks about beware of the false prophets. He goes on to say, they will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Well, they may look good and sound good on the outside, but inside, they're going to chew you up. Now, Jesus is praising them for putting to this those who call themselves apostles. Now, apparently, false teachers acted like wandering missionaries and teachers. They went from house church to house church, and they referred to themselves as apostles. And you look back in verse 2. He tells them they were not, and you found them to be liars. They snuffed out the false teachers. Now, remember, this is what Jesus is praising them for, all the stuff they're doing. He goes on in verse 3. You have perseverance, steadfastness, and have endured a patient perseverance in the midst of trying circumstances. It refers to a life of trust, a life of faith, a life of belief. Patience. Steadfastness or patient steadfastness in a hard, very difficult situation and circumstances. He's praising them for being there, taking all this in and standing their ground. Look what he says later in verse 3. Follows up, for my namesake, they have persevered and endured for my namesake, he says, and have not grown weary. They did not quit. They stood up for Christ and for the sake of Christ. And the midst of persecution, right back in Chapter nine, excuse me, chapter one, verse nine, and false teaching, and chapter two, verse two. They could not bear or tolerate their wicked. However, they did bear and tolerate hardships in Christ's name. He's praising them for this. They have not grown weary of doing this. They suffer for Christ without quitting. That's tempting for some of us today, isn't it? Just to throw in the towel and said, That's it, I quit. He's telling the church of Ephesus, you haven't thrown in the towel. You've stood up for me. 
Spiritual exhaustion comes by putting up and enduring persecution, by having battles against false teachers. Both those things alone, persecution and standing up for doctrinal purity and calling out false teachers will wear down the best of us, especially those who are weak in faith and commitment. That's why you see when persecution hits, I'm not talking about here in the United States. I'm talking about the persecution we see happening in places like China, Cuba, the Middle East. You'll see three things happen. Either people will deny their faith, people will compromise their faith, or people will grow stronger in their faith. Those are three things that you see time and time again when persecution hits. Now, we go over verses 2 and 3. The description of the church of Ephesus sounds real good. Sign me up. Are they looking for a pastor? Look what they're doing. They're standing for Dr. Purity. They're standing on God's word. They're standing up for Christ. They keep doing all these wonderful things. They're diligent. They're attentive. They're hardworking. They're characterized by great patience. They had a love for both moral and doctrinal purity. They had a, a love for ethics and doing what is good. That sounds a good church, does it not? Oh, come on, guys. Sign me up. I want you to pass through that church. Great patience? Wow, we. Sign me right on up. Can you see all these works, all these deeds? And Jesus praised them for it. He said, I see this and I thank you for it. I give you praise for it. But then in verse 4, the letter turns. Jesus says, I have this against you. What could he possibly have against this wonderful church that is standing in the midst of persecution and false teaching everywhere? That you've left your first love. This church that was succeeding in so many areas and doing so well. But the problem was the maintenance of that success had become more important than the motivation for service. Which is, of course, the love of Christ. Your first love can be understood as the love you had at first. They had lost the enthusiasm and excitement in their Christian life. They had settled into a cold tenets of belief. They had more surface than that. In other words, you subscribe, it has a mile wide and two inches deep of theology and understanding. The summary of the Torah that we found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The Lord asked Jesus, what's the greatest and first most commandment? And Jesus tells him, or actually he asked, he says, I've done these things. And Jesus said, well, love your neighbor. And he asked the question, who is my neighbor? And we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says the same story. You have a guy who's wrapped up and doing all these works, but yet he's fallen short on love. Explain it to you this way in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. That's not my words, that's the words of the text. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this command we have from him that the one who loves God should also love his brother. If I hate my brother, and I claim to love God, then the Bible teaches me and tells me that I am a liar. 
Now, before we get all wrapped up and say, that means my brother in Christ or my earthly, but no, it doesn't mean any of that. Go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, and you'll get once again taught, who is your brother? Everybody. God loved who? God so loved the world. And the Greek, the cosmos. Everybody. The will of God is that no one should perish, but to all come to repentance and salvation. But once again, this church has success. And maintaining that success, or let's say maintaining the programs and the ministries, was more important than the motivation that they're supposed to have for Christ. And before, I'm going to skip ahead for a second. Dearly beloved, we can be guilty of the same thing. We get so wrapped up in ministry that we forget the reason why we're doing it in the first place. Look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Notice their repentance is conditioned upon remembering. To remember, not only to bring to mind, but more importantly, to act on it. And so doing, it will convict them of their present errors and it will cause them to repent and change their actions. Post-conversion days for the vast majority of new converts to Christianity are characterized by days of service motivated by, motivated by gratitude and pure hearts of love. And the Ephesians were to remember that. I want you to do the same this morning. Think back in time, in that moment when you gave your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time. And the love and the excitement and the gratitude was just bursting up inside of you. It says in verse 5 as well, do the deeds. Literally the first deeds you did at first. Not just good works, but acts of love. Acts of love that characterized their early days as a church. Now the battles against the heretics could be certainly seen as good works. However, if it was not accomplished by love, it's insufficient. Go back to our text from last week, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love... I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. They have lost that. Can I ask you a very personal question this morning? Where is your heart? Do you do it out of love for God and for other people? Or is it all self-serving and self-centered? Do we come in to praise God and we love this because it's the music I like or the song I like, but we do it because God is worthy to be praised regardless if we like it or not? And do we do it with a heart of love? God, thank you for saving me. He is mighty to save. We just sang a few minutes ago. Let me tell you, if he can save me and call me into ministry, he can save anyone and call anybody to ministry. All it takes is a willing heart. 
to step out and say, here I am, Lord, send me. They have lost it. Can you just think of all the things he praised them for they were doing? And we would have a convention at the Southern Baptist Convention. We'd stand up and give them awards for it. Hey, Lord, And Jesus said, hold on a second. You've lost your first love. Where am I in all this? You know, in chapter 3, he says, Behold, he stands and knocks at the door. Some people use that for evangelism. He's standing at your heart. But in the context, he's knocking on the church door. Go, hey, you guys are singing about me. You're talking about me. Can I come in, please? It always has to do with love, though. You ever noticed that love in the Bible is never described as a feeling? It's always a command. There are days that I don't feel like loving my wife. I know she's watching right now. She's home at sick. Yes, I said it. It's on live stream. And truth be known, there are days she don't feel like loving me. But we love each other regardless why. We're commanded to. She's my wife. And you have to rekindle that. And that's what we did this past Friday. 30 years. Many of you have been married a lot longer than I have. You think back, look at all the stuff you've been through. All the crises and all these things, and you can see how you got through it together. But more importantly than that, look back where God has brought you from. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's been right there the entire time. When I get away from God, it's where Tim went. God stayed here, and I walked over here. I know better than you. That's been my problem. Look what he says in verse 5, a very sobering verse. I am coming to you and remove your lampstand unless you repent. What's the lampstand? Chapter 1. Jesus tells the lampstands what the church is. I take it to mean if you don't repent, then I'm going to take your light. You will quit being the light of the world I've called you to be. You won't have the power. We're all doing a human effort, and in the end, it won't mean much of anything. Anything we do, dear beloved, without the Spirit of God in it, without God being in it, will fail. Oh, sure, go good for a while, then we'll constantly fail. It's kind of like, I'm not a mechanic, but fixing an engine. If you had a Ford pickup, would you go get a Chevy manual to fix that Ford engine? I know some of you like Fords or Chevys. That's not the point. The point is you want to get that book that tells you how that thing was put together, therefore you can fix it and fix it right. Oh, sure, you can fix it. It may run for a while, but when it breaks the second time, it's going to even do more damage than the first time. We know what we need to do. Jesus tells us. We just need to act on it. In the midst of what seems to be such evangelistic and missionary success, in the most prestigious city of that part of Asia Minor in that time, they are being threatened with removal because of improper motivation. And the only motivation should be, must be, love for Christ. Hmm. Where does that speak to you this morning? And where does it speak to us as a church? In verse 6, he, he says, Yet that you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. 
Notice the hatred here is not directed at them, but at their works or their practices. We were told not to hate, but love our enemies. We are told to do good to those who hate us. Such language and understanding is foreign to our society and our culture. Pluralism, relativism, and tolerance reign supreme. All beliefs are acceptable because there is no absolute. You can prove that wrong very simply. There isn't that one absolute that I could take over. It's called the law of gravity. It's absolute. I don't care where you are in the world. You jump off the roof, you're going down the ground because of the law of gravity. It's absolute truth. Now, we don't know the specific, the specific details of their doctrine. However, we can become more specific about the practices because in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, they're linked with Balaam, and then Jezebel later in chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. So based on those two, we could say probably the two sins they were doing was idolatry and immorality. They accommodated pagans by participating in their practices, emperor worship. They thought they were free from the law, could do whatever, and they sacrificed to pagan gods, which was requirement to get in the trade guilds, so you couldn't have any work. And then we come to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. That's a prophetic warning. Open their hearts and minds to the truth. But notice it doesn't say the church of Ephesus, if you have an ear, let you know. It says he, or dare I even say she who has an ear. That's speaking to us as well. God has made this truth available. What are we going to do with it? Throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to hear is to obey. Letter to the churches, and not just for the churches, but for all churches. Everyone who reads this letter need to ask themselves where does our church fit in? And they should listen and repent and never be passive. He concludes with, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. To be an overcomer, or some translations render that victor, It demands a day-by-day walk with God. And the reward of the faithful? To eat of the tree of life, which is very interesting because you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, the tree of life was placed in the garden. But because of Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 24, Adam and Eve, because they had rebelled and sinned against God, he cast them out of the garden lest they eat of that fruit of the tree of life. That's where that reference is coming from. Now, here's interesting. Remember that big temple we saw? Artemis was believed to have been born on an olive tree. She was believed that she signified life and that she could give life. And there was a shrine in the middle of that temple, (laughs) a tree shrine, believed to be the place of salvation. That temple was famed for being a place of refuge, political at first, but then also criminals were sheltered there. However, I want to remind us all that the only tree that produces life is the cross of Christ. It alone offers true salvation for the repentant sinner in contrast to the temples. There's more to be said about this letter, but it comes down to that basic point. Are we, are you so wrapped up in what you're doing? 
you forget by why you're doing it. Have you lost your first love? Does God need to remind you, restore in you the joy of your salvation? Only you can answer the question, to what extent does the situation fit your personal life? But how about our church? Ask God and yourself, what is the part, what is my part in the situation? Ask God and yourself, what is my responsibility and my accountability? Have you left, forsaken, or abandoned your first love? Do you know Jesus first and foremost? Do you know Jesus as both your Lord and Savior? Now, we sing a lot of songs about he's my Savior, what a friend we have in Jesus. That's true. But he's your Lord. <laughs> you can't separate the two. He's your Savior, but he also becomes your Lord. Hence, you follow his commands. Are you so busy that you've forgotten why you gave your life to him? And that's very easy to do in our society. You look at our society. All the things you can do. A lot of things that were science fiction when I grew up are all now realities. We have a smartphone that we hang in our hands. We can pretty much contact anybody we want, find anything else we want. I mean, it's in the palm of my hand. We can jump on airplanes, go anywhere in the world. Something happens around the world, we hear about it. In a second. Just as a side note as I close that, does it? Is it remarkable to you that we have all these modern conveniences? We have dishwashers. Now, when I was a kid, me, my brother, and my sister, we were the dishwasher and dryer. A matching set. I was remote control. Hey, turn that channel, boy. Yes, Dad, okay. And whatever you do, you didn't back talk your mother because, never mind, I'm not going to go there. We have vacuum cleaners. We have all these modern conveniences now. And what was the thing about it? Oh, they'll save you so much time. Remember the microwave when it first came out? We must have defrosted and cooked like three pounds of bacon one day. This is so cool. All in the effort to save time. But what has happened? We don't have any time because any extra time we fill it up with stuff. So are you busyness of your life, just going day by day, moment by moment, have you become so busy that you have forgotten your first calling? Your first love, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And before you can even answer that question, you must answer the question before it. Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? Have you laid everything down at his feet and said, come into my life? Holy Spirit, come in within me and dwell within me. Are you tired? Are you worn out? You want to throw in the towel? This goes for believers and non-believers, and I would invite you to come. It's the moment we sing, and you just give it all over to them. Why are you holding on to it? It ain't going to cause you nothing but pain and suffering. Let it go. And whatever you do, when you let it go and lay it down, don't pick it up and carry it outside the door with you. Let it go. But be honest and genuine. You're not going to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Because this is the most sobering thought of this whole message because we do not repent and we have lost our first love everything that we're doing as a church and individuals won't mean anything because it will not last do we want to make an impact on this community of course we do we want to see more people come to christ of course we do
as verse 7 says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. You do, and you move as the Spirit instructs you. Don't worry about anybody else in the room. We're all here because we love God. We're seeking after God. No one's going to laugh at you. No one's going to make fun of you. If anything, we'll come beside you and pray with you. We'll weep with you or laugh with you. I know that. Everybody here at one point or another has come beside me and laughed at me or laughed with me, cried with me, prayed with me all along the way. You're not alone. God loves you. We love him. And we love you. That's the reason why we exist. That's the reason why we are here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great love, your mercy, and forgiveness. Oh God, search us and try us as individuals and as a church. Father, may we As you bring things to mind, may we repent from them. Confess and repent from them. So we may be clean vessels for you to use. Father, help us to let go of our fear. Grant us courage and boldness, not because of anything we could do or ever done, but because we stand solid on the rock of your word. That anchor that holds through the most pressing storms. Father, continue to move, continue to talk to us. God, we love you. We need you. We need you every moment, every minute of our lives. Grant us courage and boldness that the church of Ephesus didn't stand up for Christ. May everything we say and do honor you, Jesus. You alone are worthy of it all. Call out. Bring men and women and boys and girls to your side, oh God. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please?